Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 121 through 123 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And these sections are a piece of a letter that was dictated and written from Joseph Smith on March 20th, 1839. And so today, what is known as section 121, 122, and 123, they were canonized in 1876, and they are portions of this letter. Now, what's interesting is there's a lot of pieces left out. I don't know who chose what was included in the scriptures. I think it was Orson Pratt. But we are going to include the entire letter in the show notes where we've identified which verse in the scriptures it is so that you can see sometimes what comes before or after a quotation. So that's fascinating to go to the actual letter and see what was taken for the scriptures and what was not. Yeah. Now, the Mormon War is over. Joseph is in jail. And the reason why he's in jail is because in 1838, in October, he was turned over to the state militia, and Samuel Lucas then brought him to a judge. And a judge signed the court order charging these six prisoners with, quote, treason against the state of Missouri. And so they are being held over for trial at Liberty Jail during the winter of 1838 to 1839. Their names, along with Joseph Smith, are Sidney Rigdon, Hiram Smith, Alexander McRae, Lyman White, and Caleb Baldwin. Caleb Baldwin is the oldest. He's 47 years old, and he has 10 children. Caleb Baldwin really struggled. I mean, they all do. But he was, according to some sources, the one who was the most senior of the group and physically and emotionally was struggling in this dungeon of Liberty Jail. But before they go to Liberty Jail, they're held over in Richmond, Missouri. Right. And something happened in that jail that is one of the defining moments for me of why I love the Prophet Joseph Smith. So night after night, the prisoners are left to listen to the horrible, vulgar stories of these prison guards as they boast about what they've done to the Mormons, and specifically to Mormon women. And he, over and over again, he has to hear these horrible, depraved stories. And then one night he could take it no longer. And Joseph stands up and says, Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and bear such language. Cease such talk or you and I die this instant. And this is what Parley P. Pratt, who was there with him, wrote was his observation. And this is the majesty of Joseph Smith that I want everyone to hear. Parley P. Pratt wrote, He ceased to speak. He stood erect in terrible majesty, chained and without a weapon, calm, unruffled, and dignified as an angel. He looked upon the quailing guards whose weapons were lowered or dropped to the ground whose knees smote together, and who, shrinking into a corner or crouching at his feet, begged his pardon and remained quiet till a change of guards. Now this commentary from Elder Pratt. I have seen the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes, and criminals arraigned before them while life was suspended on a breath in the courts of England. 
I have witnessed a Congress in solemn session to give laws to nations. I have tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, and of emperors assembled to decide the fate of kingdoms. But dignity and majesty have I seen but once, as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village of Missouri. Bryce, is a great painting by Liz Lemon Swindle called Majesty in Chains. And I think that picture really encapsulates kind of what you're talking about, how even though he was in chains, Joseph was not going to be passive. And there's other accounts, right? When Joseph's in Richmond, he actually is able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, even through the bars as he's being transported. He's talking to people about the Savior and the messages of salvation. I don't think Joseph ever took off his hat of being a missionary, even in these circumstances. And so when they get transferred from Richmond into Liberty, uh, they all get visited by their wives in January of 1839. And They don't know when they're going to get out. The not knowing when it's going to end. You know, I I remember one time I had an incredible painful experience, Bryce, and I didn't know when it would end, and I was in constant pain. And I think sometimes the pain's one thing, but the not knowing when it's going to end, that can be even worse than the pain itself. There's just a lot of relevance in these sections. Yeah. How long are you going to let this happen? So... Let's go very reverently into Liberty Jail. I want you to see Liberty Jail as a type, as a pattern, as a symbol of all the Liberty Jail moments that we have. And I don't think it's very fair to compare my Liberty Jail moment to your Liberty Jail moment, because what causes me pain might not be the same thing that causes you pain. But each one of us in this mortal life are going to have Liberty Jail moments. Each one of us are going to experience severe pain that hurts. And in the middle of that pain, we're going to cry out just like Joseph did, Oh God, where art thou? Where are you hiding, Father? How long are you going to let this happen? And you can hear the anguish in his soul. And I've met so many people in the middle of that anguish. And we frequently do that. We we hit those liberty jail moments of our lives. And we're in pain. And we say, Why, God? Why are you letting this happen? Don't you care that I'm in pain down here? What we find in this letter are, I'm going to label 10 eternal truths that we need to understand about the Liberty Jail moments of our lives. And I'm sure you'll probably find things in the letter that I didn't find. That's what I love about this letter. But why? Why does the Lord allow these things to happen? Why does a woman who wants a child so badly go childless or marriageless? Why death and cancer and financial challenges? Why does the Lord allow us? And I think it's very telling if we look at Jesus's life, Joseph's life, and the life of this church, his restored church on earth, that every one of those lives have dark, painful moments included in them. They are a part of mortality. Now, getting through those dark, painful moments, we can hold on to some eternal truths. Here they are. Truth number one, verse seven. After crying out, O God, where art thou? When Joseph's soul calms down, he hears the whispering of the Spirit that says, Two 
eternal words that we all need to remember in the darkness. My son, if that's all you read in this letter, let those two words resonate in your soul. In your pain, hear him say, my son or my daughter. Truth number one is that God is aware of your suffering. You are not suffering in silence. You are not suffering alone. It reminds me of the God who weeps in the Enoch narrative. God weeps when he watches his children go through these difficult things. Yeah. In the very last verse of the beautiful hymn, How Firm a Foundation, I'd encourage you to pull that up in your Liberty Jail moments and read that last verse. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to his foes. That is an eternal truth that we need to know. My son, my daughter. Brigham Young's wonderful counselor, uh, George Q. Cannon, said the following, no matter how serious the trial, how deep the distress, how great the affliction, he will never desert us. He never has, and he never will. He cannot do it. It is not his character. He will stand by us. We may pass through the fiery furnace. We may pass through deep waters, but we shall not be consumed nor overwhelmed. We shall emerge from all these trials and difficulties the better and purer for them if we only trust in our God and keep his commandments. I want to emphasize he cannot do it. And let me see if I can point out why he can't do it. In Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah quotes what Israel often says, even today, even in 2021, in our pain, we say in verse 14, the Lord hath forsaken me and my God hath forgotten me. That's Joseph in Liberty Jail. Oh God, where art thou? It's Peter on the boat. Carest thou not that I perish? The Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. Now notice the very next verse, Isaiah and Jesus are trying to say that's not possible. And he says in verse 15, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Why is it that a woman who's just given birth to a child cannot walk away? She's paid too high a price. She can't walk away. And Jesus is saying, do you understand that? I've paid too high a price. Now, how often does that baby give her a reason to walk away? And those of you who've given birth to a child, you know exactly that moment. I, I wish I could because you're driving me crazy, but I can't walk away. I've paid too high a price. Now think of Jesus. He cannot, will not abandon us. Let me give you a practical example of that whole idea that God will never abandon us even in our darkest days. Here in Utah in 2002, a young girl named Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped and taken into the mountains. You can tell she's had a tremendous influence on my family and on me. This is from her biography entitled My Story. The abductors were a man named Brian David Mitchell and Wanda Barzi, so she's going to call them by name. Mitchell is the male, Barzi is the female. She says the following, All day we sat and cooked in the summer heat. Mitchell checked the water containers once again, but all of them were dry. 
I had thought that being hungry was difficult, but it was nothing compared to this. Nothing compared to the burning in my throat. Nothing compared to the drive to find something to drink. And I wasn't alone. Barzi and Mitchell felt it too. I could see it in their eyes. I could hear it in the dryness of their voices. Whatever had driven Mitchell to stay away from the bottom of the canyon must have been very powerful indeed. The day dragged on. Hot, miserable, dry desert heat. I was beginning to lose my energy. None of us wanted to eat. I begged Mitchell again to go down and get some water. I begged him to let me off the cable. I offered to carry the containers if he was too tired to carry them himself. I tried to understand why he couldn't go, but none of it made sense. Evening came. We went to bed. I fell into a restless sleep. I was wakened in the middle of the night. Sitting up, I looked around. The moonlight filtered through the nylon fabric, casting the inside of the tent in a pale yellow light. Mitchell was asleep beside me. Barzi was lying next to him. Both of them were breathing deeply. Mitchell's throat rattled with every breath. I looked around in the moonlight. Something had awakened me. Turning, I looked towards the front of the tent. There was a yellow cup sitting beside my pillow. I leaned toward it, checking it in the moonlight. It was filled to the very brim with water. I stared at it a moment, not believing it was real. I reached out to touch it. The cup was cold. I pulled my hand back and looked around. Was I dreaming? Was I crazy? I quickly turned to Mitchell and Barzi. Neither of them had moved. I listened. A gentle breeze blew through the tops of the trees swaying in the night. I turned back to the water. Slowly, I reached out to touch it again. It was cold as ice and filled to the top. I picked it up and drank it. The water cooled my throat and filled my stomach. It was cold and clear and wonderful. The best tasting water that I had ever had. After drinking, I stared at the empty cup for a long time before laying my head back on the ground. Where did the water come from? I have no explanation other than that the water came from God. I know we didn't have a drop of water in the camp. I know that neither Mitchell nor Barzi would have awakened to give me any water, even if they had any left to give. And this water was fresh and cold, like it had just come from the spring. I never told them about the water. I never talked about it at all. But over the next few days, I thought a lot about what had happened. Why did God do it? How did it happen? What was God trying to say? Would I have died without the water? Certainly not. As thirsty as I felt, and as terrible as it was, I was not teetering on the edge of a life-or-death situation. And I was not alone. Mitchell and Barzi needed water, too. Mitchell wasn't going to stay on the, up on the mountain and let us die of thirst. Eventually, he would have to come down to the stream. So why did God send me the water? Because he loved me, and he wanted me to know. He wanted me to know that he was still near. He wanted me to know that he controlled the earth and all the heavens and all things were in his hands. And if he could move the mountains, then he could do this thing for me. To him, it was a small thing, a terribly easy thing to do. But for me, it was as powerful as if he had parted the sea. This experience reminded me once again that God had not deserted me, that he was aware of my suffering and loneliness. And that assurance gave me hope. It helped me keep my faith and gave me the strength I needed to go on. 
May you remember that in your dark moments, and may that hope give you strength to go on. So there's number one, God is aware of your suffering. Number two, towards the end of verse seven, he says, well, let me read all of verse seven. My son, peace be unto thine soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. It will not last forever. Your suffering will end. One of the greatest things to come out of the Savior's lips on the cross was one of the final things he said. Jesus, who bore a weight that we will never bear. Jesus, who had to swallow a bitter cup that none of us even could swallow, said, it is finished. And then he voluntarily gave up the ghost. If his suffering ended, so will yours. Eternally speaking, it will be but a small moment. It will end. It will not last. Depression episodes go away. They wane. Financial challenges are often overcome. Health issues, even if it takes till the resurrection, will be completely conquered. Everything we suffer in mortality, everything will be swallowed up victory in the atonement of Jesus. No suffering that you suffer in this mortal world will last forever. Take comfort in that. Number three, verse eight, he says, if thou endure it well. If you remember back in section 58, right after they arrive in Jackson County, he prophesied that many blessings come after the tribulation. And then he says in verse two of section 58, he that is faithful in tribulation. So we find him telling Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail that you need to endure it well, not just endure it. It's not just a matter of getting through it. It's endure it well. And then back in 58, he says, he that is faithful in tribulation. And one more time, when the saints were camped in winter quarters, the Lord tells Brigham Young, this is section 156, verse 31 with so many challenges behind them, as in Joseph's martyrdom and Liberty and Missouri and Nauvoo, and yet so many challenges ahead of them, like crossing the plains and settling a desert and crickets and Johnston's army. The Lord said through Brigham Young, verse 31, my people must be tried in all things that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And then this caveat, he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. That's three times in the Doctrine and Covenants the Lord says, be faithful in tribulation, endure it well, and bear chastisement. So what does he mean by that? There's a positive, endure it well, and then there's a negative, endure it not so well. And maybe we could benefit by studying the not-so-well. The Book of Mormon tells a story of a young man who consistently responded to trial poorly. I think we could say he wasn't faithful in tribulation. And that's the story of Laman in 1 Nephi. So turn with me to Mosiah chapter 10. 
Speaking of the Lamanites, in verse 12, it says they were a wild and a ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this. So this was the tradition of Laman. And then if you look at verses 12 and 13, every time a trial came, Laman felt wronged. This is not fair. What did I do to deserve this? And that's one of the ways we often respond to trial, is we feel wronged. Now, if you look at 14 through 16, another repeated word is every time they felt wronged, they got wroth. They felt like this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. This shouldn't be happening. God is making a mistake. This is wrong. And then they got angry. And then in verse 17, they wanted to hate and hurt. And sometimes we do that even with Heavenly Father. When a trial comes, we feel wronged and we get angry, even at God. If he doesn't answer our prayers the way we expect him to, sometimes we feel wronged and we get wroth and we want to hurt God. And the way we hurt God is we stop keeping his commandments. We stop participating in sacred ordinances and we think that's going to hurt God because we're angry at him. But the reality is it only hurts us. May I suggest that is a pattern of how we endure poorly. So what does it mean to endure well, to be faithful in tribulation? We'll go back to section 136 that we were just reading about bearing chastisement. In verses 32 and 33, the Lord then explains what it means to bear it well. So instead of feeling wronged, look at verse 32, let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord his God, that his eyes may be opened that he may see, and his ears opened that he may hear. For my spirit is sent forth into the world to enlighten the humble and the contrite and to the condemnation of the ungodly. So putting that kind of in order, if when trial comes, instead of feeling wronged, I humble myself and call upon God, my eyes will be opened. The spirit will come and help me see. One of the greatest blessings that comes out of humbly enduring challenges well is that our eyes are opened and we see. Sometimes we see God more clearly. Sometimes we see ourselves more clearly. Sometimes we see other people more clearly, the purpose of life. Some of the greatest aha moments of my life have come in pain. When I humbly turn to the Lord and seek his help, and my eyes are opened. And so I would list that as number three. Endure it well, Joseph, and you will triumph. Now, number four, and I wish I could have angels shout out as I say this, because I have come to believe this is one of the most important truths to remember in pain. Joseph was told, Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee with warm hearts and friendly hands. But for some reason, we feel like we can't tell anyone about my pain. And so we suffer in silence. And we don't tell even the closest people to us. We don't tell spouse. We don't tell children. We don't tell parents. 
we shouldn't suffer in silence. Share your burden with them. There is tremendous healing that comes when we share our burden. Bryce, I think a lot of times people don't share with their friends because we don't want to appear weak. Sometimes we don't want to be a burden. And this is part of the church culture that I see sometimes is we have this quest for perfectionism. We want to appear like everything's put together. And yet when someone stands up before the congregation and says, man, I've really struggled with this. It just makes it so personal. There is real healing that (laughs) comes when you share your burden. I think this is such an important point is the Lord says, reach out to people who love you. Now, maybe some people won't share that burden, but I think we all know those who will. We know people who literally will embrace us with open arms and help us lift that burden. I am so grateful for Jane Clayson Johnson, of whom I've been a fan for many years, who struggled with an episode of depression. And after doing so, she collected interviews. She interviewed thousands of people and gathered what she saw was common themes. And she wrote an incredible book called Silent Souls Weeping. I would encourage every Latter-day Saint to get a copy of that book and read it, especially if you struggle with depression or emotional distress. She interviewed longtime BYU dean and professor Robert Millett, who also struggled with depression. And one time he was speaking to a group of students, and a girl came up and shared her experience with depression as he had spoken about his. And then Robert Millett told the author, quote, just someone sharing a similar experience, in this case saying, it's okay to have depression, it doesn't mean you're a sinner, can help. After which, the brilliant author Jane Clayson Johnson wrote the following, Those who courageously share their feelings with a counselor, a friend, or a trusted advisor, such as the young institute officer did with Brother Millet, are able to expose one of the lies circling through their thought processes. It's a lie the adversary loves and certainly hopes we will buy into, that each of us must suffer in solitude. The authentic connection you make when you share your story and feel it resonate with another's shatters this lie, bringing hope, comfort, and confirmation that your suffering is real and you are not alone. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he says, friendship is born at that moment when one man says to another, what? You too? I thought that no one else but myself. Share your burden with someone that loves you. My dear sweet wife, after seven very textbook pregnancies and deliveries, miscarried. And holding her hand, I was drawn into the world of miscarriages. And I discovered that there's a stigma and that many women suffer in silence. And they're afraid to share that burden with others that they've miscarried a child as if they've done something wrong, which they haven't. When my wife reached out to other people, it was one of the most healing things that happened to share her burden and to have other people share their burden with her lifted her. Yeah. Powerful message. Now, 
Joseph Smith, as he went through these horrible experiences and as he was in the in this dungeon, gets letters from his wife, Emma Smith, and from Bishop Edward Partridge, and from Don Carlos, his brother. And they encourage the prophet. To me, it's a beautiful matrix of historical circumstance that coalesce at this exact point in time to, I believe, soften Joseph's heart from this bitterness. And how many times do we go through struggles and what we need is we need a spouse or a sibling or a relative or a priesthood leader, and maybe it's all three. I mean, it depends on the circumstance. Could it be that they calmed him down to hear the Spirit? Yeah. The prophet Joseph Smith wrote that one token of friendship can work so that all enmity, malice, and hatred and past differences, misunderstandings, and mismanagements are slain victorious at the feet of hope. And when the heart is sufficiently contrite, the voice of inspiration can then steal along and whisper, my son, peace be to thy soul. That's the preceding verse to what we find in the Doctrine and Covenants. That's verse 16 of the full letter, as you'll find it in our show notes, if you want to go back and read that. And by the way, I love the letter so much. We put a screenshot of Emma's letter to Joseph, and you can look at her handwriting, and it just makes it so personal. It just brings in her humanity and her suffering as well. Because, I mean, we're talking about Joseph, but what about Emma? That's right. And there's a link to the Joe Smith papers. I just once again want to thank the people that work with the Joseph Smith papers making these things public. Yeah. Yep. Now, number five on our list in verse 10, I find it fascinating that the Lord points Job out to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. And I think he's saying two things. And so we're going to separate those two things. Number five on my list of 10 is Job. And number seven on my list of 10 is also Job. One of the things the Lord is saying that we need to remember is that other people have suffered great trials and survived. They got through the darkness, which is why we ought to study the atonement of Jesus. He got through the darkness, and Job got through the trial, and he survived. Let that bring comfort to us. Now, we don't need to play the silly game of comparison, whose trial was harder, whose was worse. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is other people have been through severe challenges, and they survived. You can too. I think the Lord's trying to say other people have won the victory. Other people have come out of the darkness. The sun does shine So there's one aspect of Job is that others have survived their challenges as well. Number six, starting in about 13 through 21 of section 121, the Lord talks about what's going to happen to the Missourians. Missouri was going to pay a bitter price in the Civil War, which the Lord kind of hints at. Notice in verse 15, he says, not many years hence that they and their posterity shall be swept from under heaven. Missouri was claimed on both sides, the Union and the Confederacy. In fact, both sides had a star on their flag for Missouri. So there was a civil war within the Civil War. Missouri had allegiance to the Union, and Missouri had allegiance to the Confederacy. So within Missouri, brother fights against brother. And I wonder if the Lord's just pointing out Missouri is going to pay a bitter price for what they're doing. Now, why would that matter? I think... I bring that up because Alma brings it up 
back in the Book of Mormon. If you'll turn to Alma chapter 14, do you remember Alma and Amulek preaching in the city of Ammoniah, where the wicked kick out many of the righteous, and then they take women and children and burn them, and they force Alma and Amulek to watch it. Amulek can't stand it. He just can't deal with it. So Alma 14.10, Amulek turns to Alma and says, let us stretch forth our hands and exercise the power of God, which is in us and save them from the flames. I can't stand that people are hurting. Let's stop their pain. Now listen to what Alma says. Verse 11, the spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. This needs to happen. And then Alma gives two reasons. Number one, he says, the Lord receiveth them unto himself in glory. In other words, the Lord can make this right. One moment in his bosom, in the eternities, in the spirit world, after they've left this world, and they will not be remembering the pain of the fire. The Lord can make this right. But then Alma says, he doth suffer that they may do this thing or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just. And the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them in the last day. The Lord has to allow them to exercise their agency, just like he grants us to exercise our agency. We pay a tremendously high price in this world for agency. Richard L. Evans. Now, back in the day, this was music in the spoken word. And he said the following, some of the ponderable problems, the unanswered questions, the seeming injustices and discrepancies and uncertainties, which we often have a difficult time in reconciling, will find answer and solution and satisfaction if we are patient and prayerful and willing to wait. Part of them are the price we pay for agency. We pay a great price for agency in this world but it is worth the price we pay. So long as men have their agency, there will be temporary injustices and discrepancies and some seemingly inexplicable things which ultimately in our Father's own time and purpose will be reconciled and made right. This is the classic problem of evil, and this is the attack against theists. The problem of evil makes the case that because evil exists— there must not be a God. I mean, and everyone has a different level of where they think, okay, agency can go so far. But I think most people would say, God should stop babies from burning in buildings. God should have stopped the Holocaust. I mean, if God could have, then he would have. And the, the analogy that I'm just drawing to mind is, imagine your best friend is Superman, and he is standing on top of a skyscraper next to a building you're in, but your building's on fire. And you're holding your baby out and you're saying, Superman, will you please come save my baby? And Superman is supposedly your best friend and he has the power to save your baby. So if he doesn't save your baby, one of the conclusions is Superman's mad at me. Or the other one is maybe he's not super. And then the third, maybe Superman's a jerk. Like he's just a bad person. And so this is the classic approach against religion is if there's a God and these bad things happen, 
And most of us say we're okay with agency to a point. Everybody draws their line differently. You know, some people have a line where anything short of Eden, then there must not be a God. And I'm not in that space. But when we get into places like burning buildings with babies or the prophet of the restoration that's supposed to be leading the saints is in a dungeon. I mean, there's just certain things where we go, I don't know why God would allow some of these things to happen other than my answer is agency. And I see what they're saying where they're like, this has to happen so that their judgment can be just. But I got to tell you, Bryce, I struggle. I, I, I struggle with these things in Ammonihah. How could you stand there and watch this? And it's one thing to read it on a page, but it's another thing if you're standing there. If you're experiencing it. It's brutal. But when you make it real, it yeah. really becomes visceral. But we can't claim that God should make me free. God should give me agency, but not someone else. We can't go there. If he's going to give me agency, he has to give everyone agency, even in a way that hurts me. But again, back to Alma's first point is if they do use their agency to hurt you, I can fix that. But I do have to allow them to use their agency. So number six on our list is he grants agency so that people can make even bad decisions that cause me pain. And so the Lord's reminding them, I will hold them accountable. Justice will prevail, but they have to have the agency to be able to make these choices. Number seven, starting in verse 26, the Lord reminds us that he is a three scoops of ice cream God. When my oldest was young, two or three, I held my daughter down while they gave her three shots, three painful injections. Now, can you picture the look in her face as she looks up at me and says, why are you letting them do this to me, daddy? Now, there's no way I can explain to a three-year-old why I'm putting a shot in her arm. I can't explain an immunization, but I can just simply love her. And as soon as we're done with the doctor's office, I bought her ice cream. She had three shots. I bought her three scoops of ice cream. Now, can you picture the look she gave me when I turned around from the counter and had three scoops of ice cream for her? And what happened to the pain of the shot when she got the ice cream? And that's the God that we worship. He is a compensatory God. He knows divinely that suffering is often for our good. He knows we need to deal with the challenges of mortality, and it's going to be painful at times. But he is a three scoops of ice cream God. And I testify that the ice cream swallows up the memory of the shots. When we went home that day, even that same day, it was not the shots my daughter remembered. It was the ice cream. The fact that she's talking about the ice cream and not the shot (laughs) means you did a good job. As a dad, I would say you get a gold star that day. C.S. Lewis taught this powerfully in his book, The Great Divorce. He said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity, but you can get some likeness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. All this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. All their life on earth, too, will be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. 
They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven once obtained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, the wicked often say, let me but have this and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of that sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why in the end of all things, the blessed will say, quote, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. Even when I went through Liberty Jail, I'm adding, and the lost will say, quote, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. I love that quote because I've seen in my life many times when it has come true, where both circumstances, heaven working backwards, but also the other. I, I see both. And so I think C.S. Lewis is onto something there. It's a beautiful quote. Yep. And Jesus taught this powerfully to his disciples at the Last Supper when they were suffering. He said in John chapter 16, verse 21, a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. I am an eyewitness to that 10 times. As soon as that baby is handed to its mother, it is not the pain of the delivery that they remember. It is the joy of holding that baby. It swallows up the pain of the delivery. And the Savior is trying to say, do you understand? I will pour out such blessings upon the Latter-day Saints that it will not be the three shots that you remember from today. It will be the three scoops of ice cream. So let's go back and read some of the promises the Lord is making to the saints and to Joseph in Liberty Jail. He says in verse 26, God shall give unto you knowledge by his Holy Spirit, yea, by the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost that has not been revealed since the world was even until now which our forefathers have awaited with anxious expectation to be revealed in the last times, which their minds were pointed to by the angels as held in reserve for their fullness of glory. A time to come in which nothing shall be withheld. Whether there be one God or many gods, they shall be manifest. All thrones and dominions, principalities and powers shall be revealed and set forth upon all who have endured valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there be bounds set to the heavens or if the seas or the dry land, all these things are going to be revealed, knowledge and truth and power and temples and covenants and eternal families and glories and joys, all these things. This is Bryce speaking. I'm not quoting the Doctrine and Covenants anymore. All these wonderful things are coming to you. So 26 through 32 is just, look at all that I'm going to pour out upon the Latter-day Saints. The letter says in verse 33, well might man hold back his puny arm and stop the Missouri River than to prevent the Almighty from pouring down knowledge from heaven. He is a God of three scoops of ice cream. Now, going back to Job, Job suffered. 
In the very first chapter of Job, we find that he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. That's a wealthy man. And then in one day, he loses all of those, including his children. Job loses his entire earthly possessions. They're gone. And then we have the whole book of Job, which is kind of the struggle as to finding meaning and reason. Yeah. The middle of it is the struggle. It's the Liberty Jail experience. And what Job is trying to do is to really riddle through this problem of evil. In the 19th chapter of Job, he basically accuses God of being mean, of not being fair. If you look in verse 7, he says, I cry out of wrong, but I am not heard. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. And that word, like it even shows you in the footnote, that word, that Hebrew word is essentially, there is no fairness. And in even that verse we read on, I know my Redeemer lives. If you get into the Hebrew text, essentially he's saying, my Goel lives. The person that's going to go to court, he's going to stand and show my friends, listen, I've done nothing wrong. And so from my reading of this, Job is basically shaking his fist at God. And why I'm talking about this is because I think Job gives us permission as Latter-day Saints to have real communication with God and tell him, hey, this isn't fair. I don't like this. I mean, Joseph's doing this, and so is Job. And I think that these two texts, for me, give me permission to be real with the Lord. I can cry out to him and say, I'm really mad at you right now about this. Like, there is no judgment, verse 7. I mean, that's really what, what I see there. So I know in church, a lot of times we focus on the frame, the beginning and the end, but the middle of it is the struggle. Yeah. And what gets us through the struggle is the three scoops of ice cream. So I remind you, in Job chapter 1, he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. And then at the end of Job, verse 12, this is chapter 42, verse 12, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. He had seven more sons and three more daughters. Yes, we have to go through the Liberty Jail moments for reasons that he knows best. But he runs us out to the ice cream shop, and he turns around with three scoops of ice cream. Heaven works backwards if we will endure well. That's number seven. So now we're going to jump to section 122. Let me add number eight on our list. Starting in verse five of section 122, he says, if this happens, if that happens, if that happens, if this happens, if that happens, although there's like five ifs in verse six, and then verse seven, he kind of culminates it with, if thou shouldest be cast into the pit or into the hands of murderers. And the sentence of death passed upon thee, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce winds become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way, and above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee. No matter what you suffer, here's the truth. Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. That's why he lets them happen. 
He knows what's best for us. God knows how to save us. He knows what earthly experiences I need in order to grow. At the very end of 123, verse 16, he says, A very large ship is benefited very much by a very small helm in the time of a storm by being kept workways with the wind and the waves. If you're going to sail in a rough sea, what direction do you go? You don't go with the waves or you'll end up who knows where. You don't go perpendicular to the waves or you'll be capsized. You go right into the waves. That's the only way you can survive the storm. There is strength in going workways with the wind and the waves. And the Lord says, all these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good. We get to know how strong we are. Now, later on in this letter, a portion of this letter that is not included in the scriptures, Joseph says, you will learn by the time you've read this. And if you do not learn it, you may learn it, that walls and irons, doors and creaking hinges, and half-scared-to-death guards and jailers, grinning like some damned spirits, lest an innocent man should make his escape to bring to light the damnable deeds of a murderous mob, are calculated in their very nature to make the soul of an honest man feel stronger than the powers of hell. In other words, I know how strong I am. It's only by resisting, standing up, and faithfully enduring those challenges that we know our strength. A beloved person I know battled breast cancer, and she came off victorious. And not too long after that, her family suffered a major challenge, one that might discourage a lot of people. But I remember vividly her reaction was, I can do this. I beat breast cancer. This is nothing. I'm stronger than this. And I think we need to understand that no challenge that we suffer is wasted. They all are calculated by a divine God to lead me down the path I need to go and be victorious. So all these things shall be for thy experience and shall be for thy good. Which leads us to number nine. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? I need to remember in my pain that Jesus is familiar with every one of these pains. That's what the Book of Mormon makes very clear. In Alma chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, that Jesus has taken pain to an infinite level, both in breadth and depth, that he has, in essence, broken his arm every possible way you can break your arm, an infinite number of breaks, so that no matter how I break my arm, he knows exactly what that's like. And he has taken pain to an infinite depth, to a degree I never had to experience. So if Jesus has had all these mortal experiences, if he has descended below them all and he knows me, then shouldn't we make the assumption that Jesus knows exactly which trial I need in order to make it back to his kingdom? In that great allegory of the olive tree, the Lord of the vineyard asks, what more could I have done for my vineyard? 
And he implies the answer, there isn't anything I could have done. If God could have done something else that would have been better for your salvation, he would have done it. Christ has experienced every single human experience, and he knows me. He knows my personality. He has every hair of my head numbered. And so he can put both of those together. He can say, knowing what I know about Bryce and knowing what I know about mortality, I know what mortal experiences Bryce needs to have. I know how to save him. And so we need to understand that all these experiences shall give me experience because Jesus has been through them all. Therefore, I have to conclude that my life is my very best chance at salvation. Otherwise, he would have given me a different life. Take comfort in the fact that he knows what you're going through. He's with you. But there's a reason why this particular challenge is happening to you. All these things shall give you the experience you need to be exalted. They are hand-picked for you. Which leads me to number 10, and that's verse 9. He says to Joseph, Hold on thy way, and the priesthood shall remain with thee. Their bounds are set. They cannot pass. Thy day shall not be numbered less. My belief is that God won't let it go further than his purposes for me allow. He draws a line, and he won't let them cross that line. That I can trust that the suffering won't go further than his purposes for me allow. He knows when to walk on the water during the fourth watch. He knows when I can't row anymore. Joseph Smith said that at the moment of greatest alarm, he knows that moment. He knows the moment of greatest alarm, and he won't let it go any further. He will walk on the water and save you at the moment he knows you need to be saved. Their bounds are set. They cannot pass. For me, the way I take verse 9 is I see it as a particular verse having a particular application to Joseph Smith, but maybe not universal in its application to all of humanity. But Bryce, I'm also acknowledging what you're saying about like the story of the parable of the vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? But if the bounds are set to everything, why would God set them there where there's so much needless suffering that takes place every day on this planet? And so to me, I see this idea of verse nine, and then you combine it with the problem of evil like we talked about earlier with Superman and the burning building. I don't know why God would allow some of these things to happen other than my answer is agency. But then we have verse nine, where it talks about their bounds being set. And then you have these passages, right, with Abinadi, where he stands before Noah, and Abinadi knows he's going to be slain, but not until he delivers his message. And when Joseph is arrested, when Hinkle brings Joseph to Lucas, and General Lucas of the Missouri militia gets him without a trial, without any kind of jury, with any kind of due process, Lucas orders that Joseph be shot. And I think we look at verse 9 and we see, 
Well, clearly it wasn't his time. The bounds were set. But the order given by the military commander was, we are going to take you out right now. And there's a guy by the name of Alexander Donovan who's very sympathetic to the Saints, and he was an attorney for the Saints, and he's also a member of the Missouri Army, and he's a high-ranking official. And Donovan looks at him and says, I'm not going to do it. Joseph is not going to be killed without a, a trial. We have laws. We have a constitution. And Donovan stands up for him. But how many of us don't have Alexander Donovans in our lives? What do you say to a parent who says goodbye to their son and they never return home because they're killed in a traffic accident? And so I just live in this space where for me it's messy because I see so much randomness. Why do some people have the Alexander Donovans of their lives and yet others are marched into concentration camps of Nazi Germany? And I see people that struggle with a specific behavior or sin that they just can't lick. I don't know why God would allow some of these things to happen other than my answer is agency. To me, I see verse 9 as a major wrestle when we apply it to everybody. Like, I don't understand it. I don't know the mind of God. And my contention is that God does know. God knows how to save each child. And if he doesn't treat each child the same way in mortality, if one gets an Alexander Donovan and one does not, it's because the Lord knows how to save each one of those children. Joseph Fielding Smith said at the funeral of Richard L. Evans, May I say for the consolation of those who mourn and for the comfort and guidance of all of us that no righteous man is ever taken before his time. In the case of faithful Latter-day Saints, they are simply transferred to other fields of labor. I believe the Lord knows exactly what he's doing and that some people need an Alexander Donovan for reasons he understands and other people meet an untimely death because he knows what he's doing and his purposes are met. No one beats God. No one defeats his purposes. I believe when he says their bounds are set. They cannot cross. It doesn't mean nothing bad's going to happen to you. It doesn't mean you're not going to have pain. It means I won't let it go further than my purposes for you allow. And I trust that, that my suffering is not in vain, that my suffering has a purpose and a reason, and it's calculated for my benefit so that he can literally say of everything Every one of us has suffers. This was for thy experience and for thy good, and it was not a wasted experience. But however you take that, I think the culmination of these 10 truths hopefully leads us to say the same conclusion Joseph came to, which is now printed at the very end of section 123. So the last of the three excerpts from the letter, the last verse, verse 17 of section 123. Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. And then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. When you really understand that God is with me in my trials, that it won't last forever, that this is an opportunity to endure well, that my friends will share this burden with me that other people have gotten through other challenges and I can take strength in their victories, that other people do have the ability to make bad choices that hurt me, but that God will make it right. 
God is simply granting them agency and that justice will prevail. Or that God is a God of three scoops of ice cream and that no matter what I suffer, the memory of this pain I'm currently experiencing will not be how I remember today. That heaven will work backwards and to turn today's suffering into glory. That all these things give me experience and are for my ultimate benefit to make me the person I want to become. That Jesus has descended below them all and that he knows which of those sufferings I need. And I shouldn't question which suffering he's choosing for me because I should trust him and their bounds are set. They cannot cross. The end result of those 10 truths should lead us to say, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. In our Liberty Jails, I think we can hold on to that cheerfulness. It may be painful, but I think we can hold on to a joy deep inside of our soul that says, everything's going to be okay. Now, we're going to take the rest of our podcast and just kind of tackle a few isolated verses and thoughts that flow out of this letter. Um, but we wanted to make sure that the overall message of the letter was peace be unto thy soul. Which is a good message, powerful message. Section 123, a lot of this is about collecting affidavits, collecting documents, lining out, explaining the abuses that have happened to the saints. And so we see this in the first four verses where Joseph is encouraging uh, members of the church to collect them. And then verse six, that we can publish them to the world. And so Lyman White is the one that's to collect sworn affidavits, verifying crimes against the saints. And eventually these are going to be sent to the federal government in Washington, D.C., with the hopes that we can get our lands back. Now, nothing comes of this, but we do what we can. And I think that's another message of the gospel. Even if nothing comes of it, we are to do our part. And I think sometimes in the world that we live in, sometimes we feel like, well, what's the use? And the point is, it matters to you, and it matters to God. And so I like to teach that when covering section 123. But then if you go to verse 7, where Joseph says, it's an imperative duty that we owe to God and to angels and who we shall be brought to stand, and also to ourselves and our wives and our children who have been made to bow down with grief and sorrow and care under the most damning hand of murder, tyranny, and oppression, supported and urged on and upheld by the influence of that spirit, which has so wrongly riveted the creeds of the fathers, who have inherited lies upon the hearts of the children and filled the world with confusion and has been growing stronger and stronger and is now the very mainspring of all corruption and the whole earth groans under the weight of its iniquity, it is an iron yoke. And the it in verse 8 are these false beliefs. And then he says in verse 9, it's an imperative duty that we owe, not only to our wives and our children, but to the widows and the fatherless, to basically expose these false teachings, but also to make sure that we set the record straight and to teach truth. And so if you look in verse 11, it says, it's an imperative duty that we owe to all the rising generation and to all the pure in heart. And then he talks about in verse 12, there's a lot of people, all kinds of people, verse 12, that they don't know the truth. And I love the end of verse 12 where it says, they're kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. And I think that's why Bryce and I are doing this podcast. Like this is part of what we can do to contribute, right? Verse 13, Therefore, we should waste and wear out our lives in teaching these things. Now, 
I want to just pause here. There's so much coming out of this letter, but one of the things is we have to stand up for what's right, but we've got to do it in a way where we don't repeat 1838 Missouri. And then on the other hand, I think verse seven is also saying, hey, there's some backstory to this stuff going on in 1838 Missouri. It wasn't just political persecution. A lot of this had to do with religion. And so with respect to the sects of Christianity, I just want to make sure that we read this. The prophet Joseph Smith attributes the persecution of the saints to religious bigotry of the Missourians. Regardless of historical commentary attributing the conflict between the saints and the old settlers to cultural differences or political power or economic advantage, the main complaint that the Missourians had against the saints was their religion. For example, Captain Samuel Bogart, who led a company of the Caldwell Militia against the saints, was a Methodist minister. He and two other ministers, Neil Gillum and Sashel Woods, led much of the opposition against the saints. And so the theme of religious persecution is borne out even more plainly by the simple fact that many of the saints were given the opportunity that they could stay in Missouri if they would just do one thing. And that one thing was if they would deny their faith and give up their religion. And so, yes, the religion was an issue, but yes, so was politics. And sometimes the politics and the religious beliefs were so inextricably tied together that they couldn't be separated. But yet we do see some people separating this, especially as we've talked about the Danites. As religion got more extreme, there are members of the church who said, I believe in these things, but I don't believe in those things. And so I look at verse 7 as another way to view the 1838 Mormon War, but I also look at it as an invitation to us that it's an imperative duty that we owe to God and angels to find truth. And if it's true, it's my religion. And I love how Brigham Young said that, where he says, it doesn't matter where it comes from, but if something's true, then we need to go with that, that we need to do what we can to seek truth and light. And in this world of darkness, may we not be part of it. So if you're on social media and someone's throwing darkness at you, let us not then throw darkness in the defense of truth, because I think then we're repeating the Danite experiment, which failed. It didn't work. Like, that's not how we do religion. I really like that as an overall commentary on section 123. And also to kind of balance some of the stuff I said about the saints in the Mormon war, because the more I think about it, Bryce, it's just impossible to balance because there's so much going on. So it's good to remember section 123 verse seven. Yep. And there's other things that are good to remember here. I want to take us all back to section 121, and let's talk about unrighteous dominion, because there is in this section the absolute essential secret that we need to learn. Prophets, seers, and revelators have been teaching this from the very beginning. So in section 121, verse 34, Joseph says, many are called and few are chosen. In our vernacular, I would say many have authority, but few have power. There are a lot of missionaries who have authority to be a missionary, but not very many of them have power. There are a lot of people who have authority to give a sacrament talk, but not very many of them do it with power. Bryce, you could also say this politically. You could be an elected representative and be completely weak because you don't have principles. As a father or a political leader or in religion, being a person of principle is tied to strength. Yeah. That you may hold the position, you have the authority, but you lack the power. And that's kind of the question. Why do people with authority lack the power? And it's not because their hearts are set so much upon the things of the world and because they aspire to the honors of men. 
The reason is they don't learn this lesson. Now, having your heart set upon the things of the world and aspiring to the honors of man is why we don't learn the lesson. But I want to focus on the lesson. This is the lesson that President Nelson has been trying to get us to learn from the beginning of his presidency, that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the power of heaven, and that the power of heaven cannot be controlled or handled only upon the principles of righteousness. In other words, power doesn't come from holding an office. Power doesn't come from having authority. Power comes from righteousness. It's the way you live your life. And that's the lesson we don't learn, is that we could have more power if we were more righteous. Now, the enemy to having more power is unrighteous dominion. Because what happens is we've learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all of us. I think Joseph was being generous with the word almost because I would have eliminated. I think all of us do it. It is the nature and disposition of all of us that when we have authority, when we're given a position of authority, we naturally exercise unrighteous dominion and lose power. Then in verse 37, Joseph gives us a list of four things. And when a prophet gives us a list of four things that prevent us from having power, I think we should pay attention here. Number one, the first enemy to my having more power in my fatherhood, in my church callings, in my profession, is that I cover my sins. I hide my mistakes. I won't let you see my mistakes. I can't admit that I'm wrong. It's the belief that my children would rather see me die on my white horse than fall off of it. I can't show imperfection. But because I am weak and because I am imperfect, when I make mistakes, I hide it. We're all going to make mistakes. Covering those mistakes thinking that I'm not making them, blaming someone else for my mistakes. We've all had a boss or someone with authority over us who made a mistake and then blamed the people around them. There's the loss of power. Number two from verse 37 is to gratify my pride. When I use my position of authority to think I'm better than the people around me, Or in the next one, to gratify my vain ambition. And that is, I get to decide what's best for us. We're going to do it my way. So this is the I'm better than you and we're going to do things my way position. And that is a loss of power. As soon as it's I'm better than you because I hold this position, I lose power. You lose the argument because if you're like, we do what I say because I hold the position and you can't articulate the position, you can't defend the argument using reason, then I think people that can think- You instantly lose the power. And I think another one is when you resort to name calling. When you resort to name calling, you've lost the argument because now we're on a different track. This is important stuff, not just in- like it talks about with priesthood or religion. Not just religious. This is a principle that applies across everything. You got it. If you take your politically elected position and you believe you're better than your constituents or that you're better than other elected officials or that you're better and that they're dumb and that you're right and they're wrong, it's kind of like Trunchbull with Matilda. I'm big, you're small, I'm right, you're wrong. 
and you go to the chokey. As soon as you take that position, you lose power. And I think the reason why it's applicable is because, like you said, we all do this. And I'm just going to say this. I think Joseph has learned at this point, or at least he's considering, what have I done? I mean, what could I have done at the Salt Sermon? What could I have done with Samson Avard? How could I have dealt with the dissenters differently? Because the saints wanted to compel the dissenters to either fall in line or get out of Missouri. And the God of heaven doesn't work that way. I mean, look at verse 41. I know you're going to get to it, but the God of heaven is not one who is forcing people. Yeah, and that's there's our fourth one. we got to throw that fourth one in. So back to verse 37, we've got cover our sins, gratify my pride, gratify my vain ambition, and then exercise control, dominion, or compulsion. As soon as I use my position of authority to control you, to force you, to compel you, then I've lost power. That's not how power comes. Power comes by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness and love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge. Power doesn't come from compulsion. God will never force anyone to heaven. He invites them, entices them, but he will never force them. But I see compulsion all the time. I see teachers who have a pride complex that I'm better than you. Therefore, I'm going to control you. You will do what I want or I will fail you and that will affect your future. I see people control others through guilt or tears or shame. If I try to control in any way, in any degree of unrighteousness, Amen to the power of my position because I'm using compulsion. God doesn't shame us or make us use guilt. He inspires us. Do you remember the woman taken in adultery and everyone leaves because, you know, Jesus says he that is without sin can throw a stone. Everyone leaves condemned by their own consciousness. The woman finally looks up and the Savior says, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And if you read the JST edition right after that, she went away glorifying God. A woman taken in adultery went away glorifying God. He didn't shame her. He didn't condemn her. But we use shame and guilt and tears, and money, and physical force, and all those things to control people. And this is, once again, one of my challenges is, it doesn't matter how good people are, you get a bunch of good, good people together, and we're going to disagree. I mean, some of the best people are going to disagree, and verse 41 to me is just ringing in my ears where it's like the only way we can get along it isn't going to be with force. Yeah. And so I see, to me, verse 41 is telling me, Mike, it's about finding the middle space, that middling ground, finding a place where we can, okay, we disagree on this. What can we agree on? And I think that's how you run a family. That's how we have to, frankly, run a government. Like That's, that's the only way, because once you put guns in play and we're going to force you to do it our way, I mean, we know historically what has happened to these these governments. They all get wrecked. The only way we can actually have the kingdom of God is verse 41. And 45, let your bowels be full of charity towards all men. May we be better at having power. 
I would love to sit in sacrament meeting and have everyone that stands up and give a talk, give it with tremendous power. I would love to see the elected officials in my state and in my community and in my country have true power in their positions. Real power. I would love parents to have power in their parenting and bishops to have power in their wards. And no matter what you're calling in the church, power comes from righteousness. Power comes from not hiding and covering your mistakes. Power comes when we don't think we're better because I hold the authority. Power comes from realizing that it's not my way. It's not my name written on the side of the church. It's his name. And I can't necessarily say, here's how we're going to do it because this is what I want to do. That's vain ambition or control. And power never comes from compulsion. The formula is right here, ironically written in a dungeon. I remind you that B.H. Roberts, in writing his history of the church, said that it was more temple than prison as long as the prophet was there. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about temple, and I don't know what Joseph knows right now when it comes to temple. I, I just don't know. I mean, he's laying this out in Nauvoo, but we're not at Nauvoo yet. But in Nauvoo, he starts teaching the saints about kingdom and lineage and how our children are part of our kingdom and we're sealing people together, and he's going to initiate many into the endowment. Look at verse 45 of section 121. Let thy bowels be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. That last part of that image, to me, is almost like this gradual understanding. It's this gradual revelatory experience. But then you get to verse 46. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion, and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means, it shall flow into thee forever and ever. Now, your kingdom are your children, and their children, and their children's children. We're tying this into the promises of Abraham, where the Lord says, Abraham, you're going to have more children than the sands of the seashore or the stars of heaven. So. As a father, there's nothing more that we want than our children to come to us without compulsory means, to come and, and partake of being together as a family. And so if you're a parent and you want your children to come to you, notice what it says. If you do these things, if you follow these principles without compulsory means, it, what's it? Thy dominion. What's thy dominion? Thy, thy children. Thy children will flow into thee forever and ever. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to flow into him forever and ever. And I believe this in my bones. I believe that the children of God on the earth, once they see who God is, and they know that he's this being that has the attributes of verse 41, and they realize who he is, they will want to come to him. I want to read this. I just love this. These verses in section 121 are the foundation of the power to preside in the priesthood in time and in eternity. And they reveal how God the Father exercises power and authority. Even the approaches and characteristics mentioned in these verses reveal his nature. 
The doctrine of the priesthood here includes truths by which we may become like him. For example, he's a man of holiness, Moses 6. Through the spirit of truth, he invites his children to do good without force or compulsion. He's a long-suffering individual as he waits for them to discover and learn the truths for themselves. He's gentle and meek in teaching truth and allowing us to make it part of our lives as we grow. He doesn't seek his own good, but he does everything out of the pure love for his children. He doesn't feign love or fake love as a disguise for manipulating us. Even in his chastisement, his motive is pure. That's section 95 verse 1. He doesn't seek to dominate us by virtue of him being our father. Rather, in the words of Alma, he asks us to, quote, give place in their hearts for the truths which he teaches them. I just love this as a description of who God is as a man of holiness. And the vision I have in my head is this text in Daniel, but we see this in a lot of texts outside of the the scriptures where there's a throne and there's a stone and there's this like rivers of fire coming out of this stone at God's throne. And as people come and they see the river, this and it's called the river of fire. Sometimes it's called the river of light. As they come to the light, the light grows brighter and brighter as they come to this individual on the throne. We see this in Daniel. And frankly, I think we see it in first Nephi chapter one, where God invites Lehi into his circle and like the numberless concourses of angels. So as you look at verse six, it's telling you about God, but I think it's telling you about you and the destiny that we can have. And so I really like this as a temple text. I think it's just powerful. There's so many things in here, right? We've talked about just a few, but as you read these sections, ask yourself, what does this teach me that I need to learn today? And how can I take this and be a better person? And with that, we'll come to a close of this podcast. Thank you for being with us. We tread on sacred ground when we talk about Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. As you read this week, may you have marvelous experiences to study what a prophet wrote in prison. Of him, Mike and I bear testimony of the God in heaven who is aware of your sufferings. We bear testimony. May you hold on to peace and hear his gentle words say to you in your Liberty Jail, my son or my daughter. And with that, we will see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.